Deadwood Soundwell. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Hi, welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Pelts, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. I'd like to, to start off today sharing some things with something with you that I, I just came across when I was cleaning up my stash. Words of wisdom. To make a big change in your dog's behavior, make a big change in yours, said yeah. Ted Turner. Plan, think, do. You get what you reinforce, said Bill Bailey. Dogs are not obedient to commands. They are obedient to the laws of learning. There you go. Said Gene Donaldson. What you click is what you get. Morgan Spector. Your dog is a reflection of your abilities as a trainer. Susan Garrett. The quality goes in before the name goes on. Training comes before the cues. If you aren't ignoring bad behavior, you are reinforcing it. Train, don't complain. Positive is not permissive. Capital S, capital E, capital T, your dog up for success. S, socialize. E, exercise. T, train. Hmm. And every handler gets the dog he deserves. (laughs) That's some good stuff. That's some good stuff. I found that in a stack here. Um, Needed to share it. I can remember, I think it may have been Pat Miller, who really didn't like that bit about every handler gets the dog he deserves. But I think it has a good ring to it, meaning that we're responsible for how they behave and what they do. Now, obviously, there are exceptions in that every once in a while, a really, really tough dog comes along and such things happen that there can be trauma that caused brain damage. There can be serious issues from behavior that may be much more than a person can handle well or financially. So that there are times, and part of this, I think, would could be addressed by rescue groups and uh, shelters that are passing along dogs with life history. It really concerns me. They're they're trying to look so wonderful about getting their dogs placed and out of the shelters, which is the longer they're in, the more the problems are going to have. But but some dogs are really not adoptable, and and that has to be that has to be de- decided. It has to be addressed. No kill shelters are not the answer, and that's a serious problem because no kill shelters mean that dogs are subject to death row living conditions. Hmm. So there are dogs in there that are not adoptable and they're taking up the space of a dog that could be adoptable. And not only that, but as you said, they're, they're spending the rest of their days since they're not adoptable, they're going to be spending the rest of their days on a death row type of situation, which is not good for the dog. So what, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you would rather euthanize an unadoptable dog than let it live on death row for the rest of its life. Exactly. I think that you know, we're talking quality of life. Okay. I really, really think that we need to talk quality of life. Shelters are not quality life lo- locations. They're just yeah. not. 
And there's no question but what the longer a dog stays in a shelter, the more problems he's likely to be developing. And another thing that happens is people think, oh, it's wonderful. They're taking care of all of these dogs. What really happens is when these no so-called no-kill shelters come up with dogs that are really problematic or have serious health problems, they send them someplace else to be euthanized. So they pass that along. They're not doing it themselves. Oh, so they can remain a no-kill shelter. Yes, yes. And and that's that's an unfair, unrealistic uh, presentation to the to to the public that supports them. Yeah. And as Pat Miller has pointed out, it has created a lot of hoarding. People that are thinking, oh, these dogs are homeless, we're going to take care of them. And there are only so many dogs one can take care of properly. They need attention, they need the right kind of food, they need medical care, they need exercise. And there's no possible way to do that when you've got a dozen dogs. It's hmm. just, it's just not going to work, folks, you know. So it's, um, I can understand the problem with every handler gets the dog he deserves from that viewpoint, but it also suggests that if you don't properly train your dog, that's what you have. That's how I took it. That's yes, how I heard it. And that's it was. the way I, I do it. That's the way I take it too. You know, it's your it's you, it's up to you to make your dog learn how to live in a world that's totally foreign to dogs. Mm. They're living in an entirely different world from what is normal for canines. They're having to learn to adjust to living conditions with human beings around them. We, we, we dictate everything, when they can go potty, where they can go potty, what they're going to eat, when they're going to eat. All of these things are, are dictated. They don't have very much that they can do decision-making on their own, which is why I'm such a fan of positive reinforcement training. And as it's mentioned here, if, if you aren't ignoring bad behavior, you're reinforcing it. Yeah. One of the things about positive reinforcement training is it encourages the dogs to make decisions as compared to the old fashioned training was you told them to do everything. You told them to sit, you told them to lie down. Well, you know, as I've said again and again, they come ready made knowing how to sit and lie down. You know, we don't have, we don't teach them to do that, but we'd like to put it uh, very often, we'd like to put it on cue so we can get it when it's convenient for us. But we have to remember that that they're living in a foreign world. They're living with human beings, you know, two different species. And we have some responsibilities to try and make that work as well as it can work. And it's up to us. So, yep. okay. Now, it surfaces on a rather regular basis that... Um, People want to know if they can use eggshells as a calcium supplement for a homemade diet. And we refer to this periodically, and it seemed to be about the time to do it again. And I, I think that there are people that worry about giving their dogs bones, that they're going to choke on them, whatever their excuse may be. So if you're going to use ground eggshells as a calcium supplement for a homemade diet, you need to add one half teaspoon of the powder this equals about 400 milligrams of absorbable calcium for each pound of boneless meat in your recipe. 
So one whole medium-sized eggshell, about a teaspoon of powder, which provides approximately 750 to 800 milligrams of elementary elemental calcium. And elemental amounts are the amounts available for absorption. So, and it's also a good idea when adding a new supplement to start low and go slow. Hmm. And so begin by adding the, the supplements in smaller amounts than the suggested dose and work up to the recommended amounts. So they, what the instructions are is wash the empty eggshells in warm water until all of the egg white is removed, but be careful not to remove the papery thin membrane attached to the inside of the shell because it contains important nutrients for your pet's joints with help that for arthritis. So lay the, the broken shells out on paper towels and allow them to dry thoroughly. Break the eggshells up into small pieces and grind them into a fine powder in a coffee grinder or put them in a plastic bag and use a rolling pin to grind them. Please note that most food processors or blenders will not grind the eggshell finely enough. A coffee grinder works the best. And store the powdered eggshells in a glass jar with a tight fitting lid and keep it in a dry place. So there you go. That's that's the update on that. So so let me just uh, before you put that away, let me make sure I, let's make sure I got this correctly. So one half teaspoon of eggshell powder for each pound of boneless meat in the recipe. Correct. Okay. All right. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. So it, it's pretty easy. It, it, and, and it's really important, right? I mean, that calcium, that balance, you, you talk about that yes, all the time. Yes, it's very important. Uh, raw diet is not just putting some meat down in the bowl. And the calcium phosphorus balance can determine the overall health. You may not notice anything right away, but it affects all kinds of things in the body that they need to have that balance in food. And we really encourage it. So when you're talking in terms of, of raw diet or home prepared diets, that's the bottom line. The calcium phosphorus balance is what you really have to aim for. Now, the chances are, you'll, if you're trying, if you're looking at various recipes, you're probably going to find the suggestion, check with your veterinarian. Well, I don't recommend <laughs> that because your veterinarian learned about nutrition from Hill Science Diet or Purina. And the chances are they're going to shake a finger in your face and say, you're going to kill your dog. You're going to kill your dog. Wow. So that's not the way to go. There are probably still, it's been many years since I've belonged to any, but there are probably still countless raw diet email groups you can belong to and bounce around your questions and problems and learn from them. There are certainly a number of of really good books out there now. When I first started out, it was Give Your Dog a Bone by Ian Billinghurst. And that was about it. And Dr. Pitcairn used to address um, home prepared food. And I he, he ran, he fell off the radar for me when he started addressing in his latest editions about trying to get dogs to be vegan. Said, oh, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. So it's, there are now a number of books out there and I think unlocking the canine ancestral diet is something that sh just showed up again this week, Steve Brown, which some people know that uh, my friend, when I recommended it to her, she felt that there was just too much detail. It, it was beyond her ability to, to deal with it. Other people are going to wallow in having that much detail, but you can certainly get a lot out of the book, even if you skip 
all of his pounding away on this vitamin and that vitamin and the other vitamin. So it, it's still a recommendation. Okay. So the calcium phosphorus balance is extremely important. And a lot of times, like you said, what will happen is, is people will just give their dog meat, just, you know, raw right. meat. Now, what is going to happen to the dog if we do not give them the proper amount of calcium or bone that they need? Is, is it like a weight gain issue that happens? No, 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 it's not weight gain. It's actually a balance in the body so that the chemicals, the hormones and, and the, 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 the things that the body produces are not going to give them the benefits. And I'd have to look it up and tell you exactly what is going to happen down the road. But they need calcium to develop bone. They need calcium to keep their teeth strong so that they're not going to have that if they're just getting meat. So that, you know, it's just like we, we think in terms of what people need in the way of calcium. We need calcium in our diets also. And we can get it in milk and in cottage cheese and so on. And dogs are going to get it in bone, which is also ancestral diet. It's, it's what dogs do. And if we talk in terms of how they developed, they developed as scavengers. And certainly that means that they're not likely to go out and hunt. Now, I know that Angie, for example, my dog, um, she's a standard schnauzer. She has killed and eaten squirrels and gophers. All right. So there's definitely the capability to do that. Not all dogs will. Many of them will kill and then it's dead and it's no more fun and they don't follow through to the finished product. I wasn't happy that she did that. <laughs> there was no problem having done it because she's on a raw diet. There wasn't a trace of hair in the excrement. It was like, wow. Really? Oof. Yeah, really. Wow. I mean, I was, I was amazed. I was amazed. But we're talking in terms of just like with the importance for calcium for ourselves, the same things would apply to the dog. We need to have balance in our systems. And for us, you know, especially as women get older, they're encouraged to, to have the supplements because we, we run out of the sources that we had before. So it's, it's not beyond reasonable to just think in terms of why you need it for yourself and apply it to the dog. You know, certainly bones and, and, um, and teeth are come to mind right away. So I can look it up and find out what absolutely it affects and get back to you about that. Okay. Right. And this is Dr. Jen's dog blog. And this is adventures and musings of a behavior vet and dog trainer. And the truth about treats why do we use them in training? So this was from a couple of years ago. I found this in, in my stack. She says, today I want to talk about a topic that seems to provoke a fair amount of consternation among students in my beginner obedience class, namely this. Why do we have to use treats? This is a reasonable and very common question. And so I will do my best to shed some light on this subject in our discussion today. If you've ever wondered this yourself or asked your obedience instructor, instructor why you need to bring a baggie full of hot dogs or string cheese to class each week, today's post is for you. So let's start with the basics. To be fair, we don't have to use treats. 
There are certainly other options, as we'll discuss a bit more in a moment. But we often choose to use food reward and training as our default go-to option because they have some significant advantages. First of all, treats are convenient and quite user-friendly, easy to carry in a bag or pocket, and can be used in a very precise way to reward a the exact behavior we want at just the right time. I really can't overstate how important this is. If you want your dog to understand what you're teaching, then for sure, to explain. If you're teaching a sit, it's relatively simple to pop a bit of beef jerky into your dog's mouth at the instant his rear end touches the floor. Easy peasy, right? Rear end on the floor equals tasty treat. This is how dogs learn. It's much more difficult to time your reward correctly with something like petting or play, which translates to confusion on your dog's part and a slower learning process. Now, keep in mind, she said she didn't tell them to sit. We're not telling the dogs to do that. The cue, as said, the other information I presented, the cue comes after we get the behavior. Okay. Secondly, we use treats because they work. All animals, including humans, need to eat, and the biological drive for food is a powerful one. Simply put, eating something tasty makes us feel good. The tastier the food, the more we enjoy it, which is why most of us would work harder for chocolate cake than for Brussels sprouts. (laughs) (laughs) Training trees allow us to use this unalterable fact of life to our advantage. So what does this mean in practical terms? Squirrel. Hang on. I think think there's somebody at the door. Hang on. You're making it up, Angie. (laughs) She's making it up. Is she seeing things? She's seeing things. Yeah. Okay. So, secondly, we use them because they work. All animals, including humans, need to eat. So what does this mean in practical terms? It means that for the the vast majority of pet dogs, high value food rewards are a very effective motivator. This is vital, vital for any kind of training success. If you don't have anything to offer that your dog really wants, you won't be able to teach her anything. Most dogs want hot dog slices or bites of roast beef very much, which makes them an excellent choice for this purpose. Of course, this begs the question, is it possible to build drive and motivation for other types of rewards? Yes, absolutely. In fact, this is very common in dog sports, such as agility and protection work, where toy play may be preferred over food as a reward for certain skills. But it takes some extra time and effort to teach your dog the appropriate play behaviors and build value for them and quite a bit more skill on the part of the handler to use these rewards effectively. So if you progress to more advanced obedience training with your dog or branch out into a sport that requires speed and lots of energy, you may eventually incorporate some non-food rewards into your training toolbox. But for a beginner dog and novice owner working on basic skills in your first obedience class, your life will be much easier if you stick to tasty treats. Get the easy stuff down first, then work your way up if you want to do more. But wait, you might say, I want my dog to listen because she loves me. Can't I just use praise and petting as a reward? Well, no, not really. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) honestly, I promise it's not the same thing. Truly, I find that many novice dog 
owners dramatically overestimate how much their dogs value praise and petting. And for most dogs, these things are nice, but certainly not worth going out of their way for. And in some cases, maybe actually be annoying to them if they were engaged in some other activity. Case in point, your dog will not appreciate being called away from chasing a rabbit or rolling in something deliciously dead and smelly in return for a hearty good girl and a scratch on the head. This is a big a bit like your boss asking you to take a busy overtime shift when you're already exhausted and proudly presenting you with a pat on the back and no bonus or extra pay as thanks. Odds are you won't be so quick to say yes the next time. Neither will your dog. What if your dog is a five-year-old golden retriever who truly does love snuggles and ear scratches more than anything in the world? Even then, it's difficult to use petting as an effective training reward, especially in the early stages when she's still learning a new behavior. The other thing that I want to add here is since we do that on a regular basis, it's free. Why should they work for it? Right. Okay. So in addition, most of us pet our dogs all the time. It's part of why we have them. There's nothing wrong with this at all, but it does have the effect of making petting much less valuable as a training reward. Why perform a complicated obedience routine for a scratch on the chest when you can just walk up to mom and get one for any time you want it for free? Okay, so in, in my experience, she says, the dogs I see who work just for praise and petting are actually working to avoid some type of punishment, a leash pop, a zap from a shock collar, or even a verbal correction. Whether these can be valid training choices in some cases is a thorny topic for another day. But if you do choose to train this way, you should do it with your eyes wide open as to how these techniques actually work. They cause pain or fear. Finally, what about dogs who simply aren't very food motivated? They do exist and they can be a real challenge to work with. Just ask any owner who has had one. My preference, if possible, is to get creative and find something the dog likes to eat even if it's a bit unconventional. I've worked with picky dogs using everything from Nila wafer cookies to chick fillet chicken nuggets to fishy smelling canned cat food. Every dog gets to choose what she finds rewarding enough to work for. It just may take some detective work on your part to figure out what she likes. Skipping a meal just prior to your training session can also be helpful for picky eaters. You can always feed them dinner afterwards if needed. Going for a long walk or playing a game of fetch before training can also help to work up an appetite for some dogs. It's worth doing some trial and error to figure out what your pup needs to succeed. The formula will look a bit different for every dog, but chances are some type of training treat will be vital to the process. So don't hold back. Dig into the cookie jar and dole out the good stuff for a job well done. <laughs> I think that's a really great blog. Uh, and I think that it's also truly important. I like to encourage people beginning of the day to take 25 treats and put them in a little container that's conveniently located and catch your dog doing something right all day long. Be sure you get all the 25 treats gone by the end of the day. And people say, what? So it means you have to pay attention to your dog. So your dog, let's say that you've had a pup that's been doing a lot of jumping. Why don't you just give them a, a treat when they've got all four feet on the floor? Let them figure it out. Again, ignore the jumping, but reinforce four on the floor. So they're not, you're not telling them to do it. It just comes naturally. They walk around with one foot 
right after the other, all four <laughs> of them. So if you do give them treats for that, you don't have to say what it was for. You can just give them a treat when they're walking around doing something. Or if they have found that they're lying quietly on their bed and you really like that, go over and toss them a treat while lying on the bed. They get off the bed, the, tr- the kitchen is closed. So catch them doing something right. I think it's an important way to deal with teaching our dogs to do things. Now, we're not telling them to do anything. We're catching them doing the things that we like. And by reinforcing it, they are going to start repeating it and they're going to start checking in. Yeah, I really like I really like how she emphasized how the dog chooses the treat that they want to work for. That's right. Right. And, and, and this is important. Um, not every dog is as excited about their kibble as some other dogs. Some people can train with kibble. I wouldn't because I would never feed kibble. Yeah. But I don't think that that's special enough. I really don't. Um, I think the training treats should be that. They shouldn't be their, their kibble dog food that you're putting down there anyhow. Uh, once she, she doesn't mention, I, I use the Zeewee from New Zealand, which is tiny little squares. We've talked about it before that uh, is 97% lamb and it's doesn't spoil. It's not greasy that it is sold as dog food, but I use it as dog treats, but she mentions hot dogs. They're super for training. It's just that they're kind of sticky and messy. What I did yeah. with them when I trained was I would I would get like turkey franks that trying to have the least amount of fat, slice them up and and um, on a dinner plate and putting them in the microwave to to just dry them out a little bit, not not too crispy because we don't want the dogs really chewing on them, and then each slice breaks down into maybe four to six or more different little treats. It's not a whole slice every time that they're doing it. It's tiny pieces. They don't care how big the treat is. It, it's just that they get something that they're really happy about. So one of the things that she did not um, touch on, and I know it's um, a lot of people that are against using treats or skeptical about using treats are concerned about the weight gain. Yes, of course, especially if you've got really small dogs and you're doing a lot of training in the course of the day, you have to figure on those calories. I have never had a problem with training and having a dog get chubby from it. Kibble is loaded with carbohydrates and it's always a problem with that. So we've got obesity off the charts for humans eating too much garbage, fast food, carbs, and we have it with the dogs and the cats. So that's the first thing to consider. But if you are definitely continuing to do that, then you have to balance those calories. Now, certainly your dog is likely to be thrilled at getting a piece of cheese or a hot dog as compared to kibble for working. And so that makes them even more excited. But, but it's, it's definitely, you have to watch the calories. And with very small dogs, it probably is not a good idea to use hot dogs or cheese because they can't tolerate that much fat. So what can you do? Well, um, the tiny bits of um, like the, the Zeewee, New Zealand Zeewee, it, it doesn't have any, there's no fat in there. So that's a, a good a good choice. So uh, and uh, just a chicken breast 
that's sauteed, I mean, just simmered until it's cooked and cut up into tiny, tiny, tiny pieces. It's basically flat free. And you can cut up a whole chicken breast and put it into tiny pieces and stick it in the freezer and take out some. And I mean, really tiny, tiny pieces, you know, half the size of your little fingernail and little fingernail. So it's not much. All right. Okay. So, and let me ask you this one in terms of using treats when training, is there a significant difference um, between how I give it to the dog? Let's say uh, either I, you know, I put it in their mouth or I'm away from the dog, depending on what I'm training and I toss it to them. I think it depends. Um, Certainly one thing that I have found when you've got really, really super duper jumpy dogs and they're big and they've been doing it for a long time and they really have been reinforced. One thing that I have found is when I ignore the jump, but as soon as the feet are on the floor, I toss treats away from me. Hmm, Okay. My plan is I want them to realize the food is over there not right here because some of those dogs could get pushy and start getting demanding the food by pushing and getting towards your hands. So if I toss it away, it's another trick when dogs get over overly excited when you first come home and they do a lot of jumping, form the habit of tossing some treats when you come in the door, they will very quickly learn to go over there for the treats. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a good plan. All right. So we want to have the dogs depending on what we're doing. Now, when we're talking in terms of clicker training, which I strongly recommend, but it is important for the dog to understand why they're getting the treat and what the clicker does, or you saying yes at the exact moment that the butt touches the ground, that marks the behavior. The dog knows that when they get the treat immediately following that word or that click, they're going to make the connection that that mark tells them they did the right thing and they know to repeat it. Hmm. So we're doing, we can do capturing, we can do random training, but marking the behavior when you're doing the training end of it is very, very important. That's what really gets through. What you click for is what you get. Like we said in that other list. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, no, it, it's, it really makes a difference. It, it eliminates confusion. And we have a lot of confusion when it comes to training our dogs. We, we're talking in terms of a different species. We we find people that say he knows what to do. He's just being stubborn. No, <laughs> no. And that's what this next one is about. Why your dog is not stubborn. So we're talking in terms of different species. Different things come more naturally. Part of that we're we're verbal people. Dogs are body language critters. So they pay more attention to movement of your body, your hands, your feet, et cetera. And when people will say, he knows how to do it, he's just being stubborn and they'll point and say down. And I say, but your dog doesn't know the word down means that. Oh yes, he does. He's just being stubborn. Well, no, the dog is paying attention to you pointing and ignoring the word. And I'm not against, I'm all for hand signals, but you can't put them together because the the verbal sound means nothing. They're only responding to the physical. So, and whenever you're trying to change that, you always want to put the new signal before the old one. So in the case where you've been pointing and saying the word, you want to say the word, pause, and then go ahead. So you can take point, then say the word and pause. So you want the dog to begin to focus on the new cue. 
And this worked very well when I was in Mexico and doing teaching dogs in English and Spanish because there were people who worked in the, in the household and they spoke Spanish. And the dogs picked up on it really well. And there was no question about it. They can do it. They're pretty smart. Okay. Positive animal wellness, PAW, P-A-W. And this is by Terry Hayward. Why your dog is not stubborn. Often folks believe that their dog is being stubborn. I frequently hear, he knows how to do it. He just doesn't want to, or she can do it, but she doesn't feel like listening to me. The fact of the matter is that while dogs can experience joy, love, and fear, stubbornness is not in their repertoire. Hence, most times it's actually <clears throat> faulty communication at play rather than a decision to be obdurate. Frequently, people also forget or don't fully grasp that we are communicating via limited verbal few words plus tone and inflection, and mostly visual gesture, facial expressions, body language information. Dogs don't speak that way that we do, and with all the confusing background noise, extraneous verbiage, and general distraction going on while we are attempting to convey something, it's downright amazing that dogs are intelligent enough to glean what we want. <laughs> Let's take an example. Say that we have three items on the floor in front of the dog, a book, a toy, and a cookie. Now we'll presume that I'm intending to train my dog to place the cookie on top of the book. I'm doing this via positive reinforcement. So I'm marking with my clicker and reinforcing with a treat each correct repetition of this behavior. Two weeks go past, and I'm fairly certain that my dog has discovered that with our three items, the toy actually has nothing to do with behavior that we are training. Furthermore, he's consistently been placing the cookie on top of the book for a significant time, and as such, I'm thinking that he's got the behavior down. After two weeks of us practicing, one day I cue the behavior, and instead of what I'm expecting, my dog places the book on top of the cookie. <laughs> what do you say? Not listening? You insist? Stubborn? You exclaim? <laughs> Meanwhile, your dog is now really baffled and confused instead of your happy response to his actions. Your face is contorted. There's no click and treat. You seem upset. Now, here's a plausible explanation for what's really likely going on. A lack of communication. While all along, you believe that you were training cookie on top of a book. Your dog coincidentally placed the items in this order. However, your dog believed the behavior to be stack up the cookie and the book. Do you see what happened? It's not your dog being stubborn at all. It's a lack of clear and precise communication and thus confusion. The solution you ask, teach and train. As Dr. Susan Friedman, exalted behaviorist, likes to state, performance-feedback-revision. Your dog has let you know that there is a problem in the communication loop. Thus, you need to work a bit more on revising your training for success. Do so, and you will improve communication, have successful behaviors, and there won't be a stubborn dog in sight. <laughs> so dogs don't do stubborn, huh? They don't do stubborn. No, the kind of mentality that requires is something humans have, and dogs don't. So there's oftentimes confusion. For sure, there's confusion. There also can be that we have not train the dog for the circumstances that exist. And this is where the Pat Miller's favorite comment about there's no refrigerator comes in. For example, if, you know, if you've taught your dog to sit, you've been working in the kitchen, it's convenient where you've got your treats and your dog is now gone as you say, sit and boy, that butt gets barked. And you go into the living room and you say, sit and the dog looks at you. 
<laughs> and what Pat Miller says is there's no refrigerator. You think the dog is listening to you and the treats are rewarding the dog. The dog was associating the refrigerator. You had no idea that was happening, but the dog was very close to the refrigerator, figured that had to play a part. No refrigerator, I don't have to sit. So we think in terms of, we have to understand how dogs get the information. And keep in mind, one of the reasons that a clicker is so much more effective than the human voice is it never changes tone. It's a totally unknown sound to the dog. Whereas we can say, okay, okay, okay. It changes every single time. Or you can be really fussed at how long it's been taking and you say, good dog. And it means nothing compared to that silly jumping up and down. What a good dog. You're so smart, blah, blah, blah. So there's so much baggage with verbiage so much baggage. And I'm not saying don't jump up and down and get excited and have a block party when your dog has done something wonderful. But when you're training, use a, a clicker or just a, not a whole sentence, just good or yes. I prefer yes to good because it's very unlikely that you'll do anything but smile or come close to smiling when you say yes. So I like that to be the replacement word. I wanted to ask you about that. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, the importance of your tone and your inflection, because the dog can understand that. Like you said, if you are, your dog knows when you're upset and your dog knows when you're happy. So I assume that tone and inflection is extremely important. Absolutely. And so if you're, if you are scolding your dog, which I suggest you never do, there's something wrong, then you should have fixed it or should be fixing it or planning to fix it. But when we address the dog in an impatient way or a scolding way, it definitely affects their behavior. And you're likely to see them getting smaller and slower, lowering, lowering down their tail tucks between their legs. Mm -hmm. These are indications the dog is stressed, not feeling guilty because right. you have suddenly become a monster they don't understand. One minute you're lovey-dovey and you're petting and scratching and getting belly rubs. And then you're, what have you done, dog mood? And they don't get it. They don't understand what happened to the person that they trusted. So it's, it's very important that they really, they really do respond extremely well. And so the changes in your tone of voice and so on. And you know, this is interesting in that one thing that I can remember uh, bringing up and, and suggesting to people is when you're teaching a dog to come back to you out in the outside world, it's an advanced level of training to get a dog to come when called. There's no question about it. And and yet you can work very hard at it. And then one day you're surprised and the dog responds to the squirrel and doesn't come. And we're inclined at that point to be hollering, come, Foxy, come, come. I think you periodically have to train your dog to understand that Foxy, come, come, come is the same as Boxy, come because it sounds oh. totally different. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty much what I was asking. Yeah. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to, you have to expose that to them so that they learn what that sound means. And of course it's, it's rather silly to be saying, come, come, come when your dog is running away, tail North, um, 99 miles an hour. Do you really think it's going to work? I doubt it seriously. 
but you can plan on teaching that the sound is working. And then the other thing, of course, is when they do come back, you better have a smile on your face and a treat because they will not understand that you are ticked off that they ran off. They'll just understand that going up to you, you've gotten strange and they may not want to come ever again when you call them. Right. Yeah. Okay. So never scold our dogs. So does that mean we are to, you are suggesting and saying that we are never to punish our dogs in any way? That's right. Punishment is they've done something that you didn't like, but did you train them what to do under those circumstances? And so it's, it's very important for us to take responsibility for our dog's behavior. They didn't come into the world learning how to do these things. They're living in another world with another species. And if you haven't taught them to do a given set of behaviors under different conditions, there's no reason for punishing them. You didn't teach them how to handle that condition. Wait, I know what the punishment is. What she, <laughs> what the dog owner needs to do is grab that Sunday newspaper roll it up and hit themselves on the head with it. Cause they didn't teach their dog what to do. That's right. I should have been watching in the, in the pound. I should have been watching the dog. I should have been watching the dog. I should have been watching the dog. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, Charlotte quotes there. Take that newspaper and hit you with, hit yourself. <laughs> to get your questions to us, just email living with your dog at gmail.com. That's living with your dog at gmail.com. And also, you can find Living With Your Dog on Facebook. Okay. Now, this is um, something that I wrote some time ago. Why resist using food? All of the best dog trainers work without food. That's what I was always have always been told. Dogs are supposed to want to please us as their masters, or so goes the common lore in traditional dog training. As positive trainers, we use food all the time to train our dogs with excellent results. How can we convince dog owners that working with food and rewards is not only effective, but doesn't come with all the problems they might have heard about from other trainers? Those who object to the use of food often cite the many problems that using food creates with the dog. The most common arguments using treats are, your dog will only listen to you when you're actually holding a treat. That's bribery if you're holding a treat in front of the dog. Okay, You will have to have treats with you 24-7 to get your dog to do anything. You are unknowingly make your dog more dominant and aggressive. Your dog could get sick, fat, or diarrhea from so many treats. Dogs cannot be successfully trained for durable behaviors using food. Dogs trained using food are unreliable and don't really learn to respond to the handler. Your dog will obey based on what type of treats you are offering. You will make your dog demanding and he will bark, jump, whine, or mouth at your hand for treats. <sighs> Most, if not all of these objections speak more to an incorrect use of food in a good training program than, rather than the food itself being a problem. Denying our dogs food in return for their cooperation reflects our human need to have our dogs prove their love and respect for us. Insisting that a dog should perform only for intangible rewards like affection seems idealistic considering that humans place material value on their own efforts by asking for compensation for our work. Viewed another way, training a dog to work without food seems like we are withholding pay from them, like we are getting something for nothing or very little. How clever of us. And we could probably feel good about that if we didn't call it something else in human relationships, undefined exploitation. So there are two sides to the argument. 
It seems we can use food and avoid all of the problems that many trainers caution dog owners about, and we can be fair in our training. We don't have to get something for nothing or very little from our dogs. And that's what I said. Could you repeat that last line again? That was great. Let's see. We don't have to try to get something for nothing or very little from our dogs. Mm-hmm. And so it's a salary. You know, we call it reinforcement, but you can think of it as a salary for a job well done. You know, they're working. They deserve to get paid. So in that article by you, which was awesome, uh, you touched on, uh, you know, the one of the things that those who are against treats using treats said uh, that they'll start demanding or being pushy for treats. Now, that brought up uh, in my mind begging and uh, yeah. I, I uh-huh. could see that, you know, if we're giving treats a lot because, you know, we're training and we spend a half hour training and then, you know, we stop training because you don't want to train for very long. Uh, that's something mm-hmm. that Charlotte always tells us. Take breaks. So we take a break and then the dog is begging or nudging us or, you know, doing trying to get our attention for a treat. How yeah, do and we deal happens. with that? That can happen. So one thing I think is important is to have a cue that ends the training session. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what I always did was I just hold my hands up like this. You know, there's nothing in them. Okay. Yeah. We're finished for now. It, it, the other thing is that the problem with the treats that we're talking about is very often, as I mentioned, it's bribery. You've got the treat out in front of you, visible to the dog. The dog sees the treat. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The treat should be in your hand behind your back. I would always have a half a dozen treats in my hand so I can reinforce very quickly repeated behaviors. When you mark the behavior, when you say yes, or you click the clicker for the dog having done something, you bring the food around and you give it to the dog or you toss it on the floor. So the dog is not seeing the treat. That's bribery. Bribery is something that you do before in in the olden days um, when it was, I can remember, I grew up in Chicago and I can remember people talking about bribing the, the cops when they would get a speeding and <laughs> yes. they would hand over their license with, in those days, it was probably a 20 and now today's <laughs> it might be a hundred. And that's a bribe to get the officer to not give you a ticket. It comes before the behavior. Reinforcement is salary. It comes after the behavior. And that's a huge difference. So we want that to be the case. The other thing is you can have treats in different locations around the house in the early parts of training so that the dog doesn't really know where they're coming from, up on top of the the mantle and on the the dining room table and, and in your back pocket and whatever. So you're giving the association. Now, if your dog starts to beg, one of the best things you do is ignore it. You just walk away. Okay, I've got the food. You want it? Too bad. You're not, that's not what you're getting it for. So it's a bribery is the big thing that will likely cause that, that they see the food and they're demanding it. It's not yeah. that they're working for it. And the dogs quickly figure out when they're working for something, because this is what part of the positive reinforcement training does. It makes them problem solve. Right. So if they start to get pushy, and it doesn't work, I leave with the treats or I stand there and just freeze if they're not being too um, pesty. Then they do something correct and they get a treat 
the wheels turn and they figure it out. And when they problem solve, the, it really it really is a take. It really is a take. So, you know, we're talking in terms of let them problem solve. Now, when we're talking in terms of them mauling for a treat, that's because you have had the treat out in front of you and they're not associating it with their behavior. They're associating it with just getting a treat. Right. So it's important that you are not showing the dog a treat. You are bringing it out from a hidden spot after the behavior has taken place. Does and that help? It does. It does. And that uh, brings up something else that we don't, we haven't really touched on when we talk about positive reinforcement training, as we talk about it a lot, is the importance of the ignore. Of the ignoring? Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, it's very difficult for people to, really grasp the fact that when they say, no, get down, get off, whatever, that they are reinforcing the behavior. That's right. very difficult for people to understand. Oh, he knows, look at him. He's still doing it. They don't grasp that they are reinforcing it because the dog is getting attention. The dog is not listening to no. The dog is not listening to don't do that. They're getting attention because they didn't get attention with four on the floor, quietly walking around behind you but they get it when they jump on you. So who's at fault here? Catch them doing something right. And you won't have that problem. Dogs don't do don't. They don't do don't. <laughs> okay. This is from my vet friend, Kitty. And she's, she's provided some things from Jean Donaldson, who I mentioned a bit ago. She's, she's just a, an absolutely outstanding trainer and uh, anything that she has to say or do is worth your time. So this is provided by Jean Donaldson, the top 10 dog behavior myths. Oh boy. This is something that again, works well into what we're talking about here with dogs begging and demanding and so on. Okay. There are a lot of myths about dog behavior, she says. So I whittled it down to ones that were pervasive and that made myth criteria, which are a there is no zero scientific evidence supporting the contention. B, there is scientific evidence against the contention and or scientific evidence supporting alternatives. One, dogs are naturally pack animals with a clear social order. This one busts coming out of the gate as free-ranging dogs, pariah, semi-feral populations, dingoes, etc. Don't form packs. As someone who spent years solemnly repeating that dogs were pack animals, it was sobering to farm to find out the dogs form loose, amorphous, transitory associations with other dogs. They are not wow. wolves. They, wolves form packs. They have a family, a mom, dad, a couple of kids from this year and a couple of kids from last year, and they work together. Dogs don't do that. Two, if you let dogs exit doorways ahead of you, you're letting them be dominant. <laughs> there is not only no evidence for this, for this, there is no evidence that the behavior of going through a doorway has any social significance whatsoever. In order to lend this idea any plausibility, it would need to be ruled out that rapid doorway exit is not simply a function of their motivation to get to wherever it is on the other side, combined with their higher ambulation speed. And dogs may want to run out the door, but that's up to you to teach them to wait, to, to be told that they're going to. Okay, three. In melted dog households, support the hierarchy by giving presumed dominant animals patting treats, etc. first before giving the same attention to presumed subordinate animals. There's no evidence that this has any impact on inter-dog relationships or any type of aggression. 
In fact, if one dog were roughing up another, the laws governing Pavlovian conditioning would dictate an opposite tack. Teach aggressive dogs that other dogs are receiving scarce resources predicts that they are about to receive some. If so practiced, the tough dog develops a happy emotional response to other dogs getting stuff. Ah, a helpful piece of training indeed. No valuable conditioning effects are achieved by giving the presumed higher ranking dog goodies first. Dogs have it. This is number four. Dogs have an innate desire to please. <laughs> dogs do what works. This concept has never been operationally, operationally defined, let alone tested. A vast preponderance of evidence, however, suggests that dogs, like all properly functioning animals, are motivated by food, water, sex, and like many animals, by play and access to bonded relationships, especially after an absence. They're also, like all animals, motivated by fear and pain, and these are the inevitable tools of those who eschew the use of food, play, etc., however much they cloak their coercion and collar tightening in a desire to please rhetoric. <laughs> Five, rewards are bribes and thus compromise relationships related to four, the idea that behavior should just, in the words of Susan Friedman, PhD, flow like a fountain without need of consequences is opposed by more than 60 years of unequivocal evidence that behavior is again, to quote Friedman, a tool to produce consequences. Another problem is that bribes are given before behavior and rewards are given after. And a mountain of evidence from decades of research in pure and applied settings has demonstrated over and over that positive reinforcement, i.e. rewards, make relationships better, never worse. Six, if you pat your dog when he's afraid, you're rewarding the fear. Fear is an emotional state, a reaction to the presence or anticipation of something highly aversive. It's not an attempt at manipulation. If terrorists enter a bank and order everybody down on the floor, the people will exhibit fearful behavior. If I then give them a bank customer on the floor a compliment, 20 bucks or chocolates, is this going to make them more afraid of a terrorist next time? I, I It's stunningly narcissistic to imagine that a dog's fearful behavior is somehow directed at us along with the enthusiastic door dashing. And we can work to help console them when they're fearful. All right. If this, this is an emotion. You can't train when they're showing severe emotions, but you may be able to console them. Seven, punish dogs for growling or else they'll become aggressive. Ian Dunbar calls this removing the ticker from the time bomb. Dogs growl because something upsetting them is too close. If you punish them for informing us of this, they will still, they're still upset, but now not letting us know, thus allowing scary things to get closer and possibly end up getting bitten. Much better to make the dog comfortable around and what he's growling at so he's not motivated to make it go away. Playing tug make dogs aggressive. There's no evidence that this is so. The only study ever done by Borschelt and Goodloe found no correlation between playing dog, tug and the incidence of aggression directed at either family members or strangers. Tug is, in fact, a cooperative behavior directed at simulated prey, the toy. Nine, if you give dogs chew toys, they'll learn to chew everything. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Pandora's box of argument that once again has zero evidence to support it. Dogs are excellent discriminators and readily learn with minimal training to distinguish their toys from forbidden, forbidden items. The argument is also logically flawed as chewing is a hydraulic behavior that waxes and wanes depending on satiation, deprivation, as to drinking, eating, and sex. 
Dogs without chew objects are like zoo animals in barren, barren cages. Unless there is good compensation with other enrichment activities, there is a welfare issue here. And 10, you can't modify genetic behavior. All behavior, she says, and I mean all, is a product of complex interplay between genes and the environment. And while some behaviors require less learning than others or no learning at all, their modifiability varies as much as does the modifiability of behaviors that are primarily learned. So there you go, Dr. Eugene Donaldson. She's not a doctor, but she's, she's something else. Wow. So these, it's true that there are so many of these things that people believe and how the dogs suffer how they yeah. suffer because these things are just not true. You know, door dashing, it's, it's, it may be very exciting to get out there. And I, I know they can knock you down going through the door, but that's because you've let it happen. All right. All right. That'll do it for us today. Man, okay. we got through a lot. First off, yes. we had some words of wisdom, the great, great words of wisdom. And then next, we were talking about eggshells, using eggshells as a calcium supplement. It's very important to get the calcium phosphorus balance. The recipe is half a teaspoon of the powder, after you grind it up and dry it up and all that stuff, half a teaspoon of powder for each pound of boneless meat in the recipe. Next, from Dr. Jen's blog, the truth about treats. Why do we use treats for training? because they work <laughs> it's an that's effective it's an effective motivator yes and then let's see from uh terry hayward why your dog is not stubborn your dog doesn't know how to be stubborn what ends up happening is it's your fault it's a lack of communication or faulty communication never scold your dog don't punish your dog let's see and then from the wonderful charlotte pelts why resist using food well don't <laughs> Again, treats <That's> work. <laughs> and then from Gene Donaldson, ten myths about dog behavior. Wow. And yeah, we 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 adhere to a lot of these myths, unfortunately. All right, Charlotte. Before we head out, do you have any more words of wisdom for us? Yes, humanity's true moral test consists of its attitude towards those who are at its mercy. Animals. Milan Kundera. Good one, huh? That is. Yep. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Isn't that cool? Check out all the podcasts brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Finally, a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies. Whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot, arguments about who's the MVP of the film, or crit and lit about it, you'll find it all on Fields of Glory. Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast, Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones in the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. 